0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's read Mark chapter 8 verse 1. Remember what happened in chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7. He has this interaction with these religious Pharisees. And then in the second half of Mark chapter 7, he has this interaction with these Gentile people, this Greek, this, this Syrophoenician Gentile woman that he, he, that he heals her daughter, and this deaf and mute man who he heals. And so now he's still in this Gentile territory, the Decapolis, and we see him perform another miracle. So let's read in verse 1 In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Verse 4, listen to this. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place read that verse in with the backdrop of mark chapter 6 where jesus just did this for 5000 people verse 5 and he asked them how many loaves do you have they said 7 And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, Seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And again, remember, that's very likely just counting the men in that culture, so probably many more. And he sent them away. And verse 10 says, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Okay, so let's stop there, and let's consider... The first thing that we see here, the heart of Jesus in these these first ten verses now um, now admittedly, this is an interesting um, story because it comes just a couple chapters, just very likely a few months, maybe a year, eighteen months after Jesus has just fed another multitude the the five thousand that we read about in mark chapter six verses thirty through forty five so so what are we to make of this? Now, this has led some liberal scholars to think that Mark was confused and that as kind of oral tradition, maybe through Peter, or not, not maybe, definitely through Peter, who is, is the apostle who gives Mark this gospel its authority because Mark was uh, very likely Peter's ministry associate, maybe, you know, just like in any game of telephone, you know, when you're playing a game with kids and you start with a sentence and by the end of the time you get to the end of ten people, the story changes a little bit. Well, I think, well, well, clearly this, clearly this didn't happen because look at verse 4. It says that the disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And that question seems so dim-witted. Like, how could these disciples actually asked that question in light of the fact that just a few chapters before, months before, they had seen Jesus feed 5,000. Now, admittedly, we forget things, but can't we all agree that we think that, you know, you would sort of remember that? And so, so that has led liberal scholars to think that this is a, uh, maybe a mistake or just added for emphasis, and it is the same event just told twice in the Gospels. But there's, there's a problem with that. And I think if we look closely at this, we'll see a few differences. First, we see clearly a difference in the size of the crowd. We see a difference in the time that the crowd was with Jesus rather than just one day. It was three days. In fact, it says that if they were so far away and had been with Jesus for so long and were so hungry that if Jesus sent them away, they would faint. There's a a difference in the number of loaves. But primarily, there's a difference in the crowd, In Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds primarily, if not exclusively, Jews in that first miracle of the multiplying of the fish and loaves and the feeding of the 5,000. But in this instance, he is feeding not Jews, but he's in this decapolis, this, this sort of conglomeration of 10 Gentile cities. And so he is feeding a Gentile mixed crowd. And and that would not have been overlooked by Mark. That The the difference there, this Jewish writer here, Mark, writing down these words would not have confused those details. And so I think this, and not just that there's another crowd, but but the fact that the disciples have forgotten these things, maybe, or are just sort of wondering, like, how are we going to do this again? Maybe they're just not presuming upon Jesus that he's a sort of, you know, get out of jail free card. Maybe they were remembering it, but they're just sort of humbly saying, look, how are we going to do this? Maybe that's what's going on. But regardless of what's going on, what we see here is the heart and the compassion of Jesus for people not like himself. He has compassion on these people But I think that the main reason that Jesus feeds these 4,000 in this different setting, a different ethnic group of people, is that he is teaching his disciples and he's teaching us 2,000 years later that Jesus himself is really the first cross-cultural missionary of the gospel. Jesus is going to people not like himself that his culture would have considered unclean and unworthy of ministry and 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 we read in chapter seven where Jesus is healing these people. He's touching these people. And in this instance, in Mark chapter eight, he is feeding not just the Jew, but the Gentile. So the first thing that we see here in this this passage is the heart of Jesus as a cross-cultural ministry. And and again, we we talked about that last week, but it comes up again in the text. This is why I love preaching through books of the Bible, because if I repeat myself, you guys don't think that I don't have any new material. You just realize it's in the text, right? And so last week, one of our points was, as Jesus healed the, the, the daughter of the unclean Syrophoenician woman and then laid his hands on the unclean Gentile who was deaf and mute and healed him, one of the points was, is that Jesus is a cross-cultural missionary, therefore we can be too. And so, one of the points today is that Jesus is a cross-cultural missionary, and therefore we can be too. You see the heart of Jesus for people not like himself? So, so let's boil this down. Let's, let's, let's take this truth that we see the heart of Jesus, and let's think about ways that it applies to us. How are we called to be cross-cultural missionaries? Well, for some of us, it means like a family here in this church that, Lord willing, will be leaving to be missionaries in Central Asia in uh, a year or so. Maybe it means getting on a plane and taking your two young children and your wife and, and leaving home and job and going to Central Asia to a former Soviet republic and ministering the gospel amongst Muslims that have never heard the name of Jesus in a city where there are very likely less than 10 believers. Maybe that's what it means. It means that for this particular couple in our church. I won't mention their names because we don't want this out on the Internet, and it's a sensitive area that they'll be serving in, but I think you all know who I'm talking about. And maybe, maybe it does mean that for you, and don't assume that it may not. But also, if it doesn't mean that for you, don't assume that you, that we also aren't called to cross-cultural ministry. I mean, there are, there are different cultures, even just in this room in Columbus, Georgia. There's people from different cultures in different parts of the United States, people from different countries that are in this room, people from different segments of society, even in our culture. There are people that are of the same ethnicity in this room who are as different from each other culturally as maybe a different ethnic group is from one another in other parts of the world. And do you see how Jesus gives us this model of cross-cultural ministry that we are to get outside of ourselves and love people who are different. In fact, in the Old in the New Testament, this word is not mentioned here in this text, but do you know that the word hospitality that we read in the New Testament, we read it like in places like First Timothy three where he says that hospitality is a requirement of of elders and pastors in the church. And, And then we read in other parts in Paul's letters where he says that we should be hospitable to one another. It doesn't mean that we should just have our friends over, but literally that word hospitable in the Greek original language means that we should have a love of strangers, people not like us. Now, that may mean a different ethnicity, it may mean a different culture, it may mean a different economic stratosphere, it it, it may mean a different age group. So when Wayne was talking about children's ministry, some of you may be called to cross-cultural ministry down the generational slope. Like you're 30 years old or you're 50 years old or you're 60 years old, and one of the best ways that that you can be a cross-cultural ministry is to serve in the three-year-old, the culture, of the yellow room, which is its own entity, believe me. Um, on Wednesday nights, um, as Wayne has been teaching in here, I've had such a blast. Um, my wife and I have been have been um, teaching the elementary age class, and I started out as a children's pastor in that cross-cultural ministry, and um, I, I've sort of been I'm, I'm getting my you know getting my sea legs back with elementary age kids these past two weeks, and, and the first week we did it. And um, I was sort of introduced to the, the difference in culture between me and this eight-year-old girl who shall rename nameless. She's a sweet girl, and she comes from a very sweet family in this church. Um, but we were going to play a game, and it was a game that I used to like to play with kids 15 years ago when I was a children's pastor. And I said, let's play this game. And she did, said under her breath, not, she wasn't trying to be a smart aleck, but she said, oh, we're going old school on that one. <laughs> Thank you, sweetheart. <laughs> So, so do you see how we are we're all called to some sort of, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to love people not like you. And one of the sweetest, most Christ-like things that maybe you can do is to, even in a room like this, have your head on a swivel and think about who you can in, invite to lunch at your house, or that you can get to know their name or that it, it in some way you can engage and show love to people not like you. And when we do that, we commend the gospel and we come, become more like Jesus who, who goes across the cultural barriers to satisfy not just Jew, but also Gentile. Well, let's keep reading in verse 11. So now he's left this group of Gentiles that he's fed and he got on the boat, went with his disciples to the district of Dalmanutha. And in verse 11, it says, Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And what Jesus is saying there is really just, he's just kind of swearing an oath. He's in, "This is I'm fed up with these, these guys. I'm not going to do this. As surely as I stand here today, no sign will be given to this generation. And in verse 13, it says, And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. And so in these this brief little paragraph, these brief few verses, we go from seeing the heart of Jesus to seeing the disgust of Jesus with the self-righteous religious Pharisees. The Pharisees, listen to what they're doing. They are trying to test Jesus, so the audacity, okay? So verse 11, let's read this slowly. Let's think about, let's not read this. That's why it's good to read whole books of the Bible, to get the whole context. And when we read the whole context of of a Bible, of, of a book of the Bible, or a passage, then the individual verses sort of gain their weight and their context. So in verse 11 it says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So, so just to be clear, this is what the last few chapters have been full of. Feeding 5,000 Jews, walking on water, stopping the storm twice, And numerous healings, causing blind people to see, deaf people to hear, lame people to walk, and oh yeah, that little thing about bringing this little girl back from the dead. But yet, we religious folks in all of our wisdom would like to see a little something out of you, Jesus, to let us know where your authority comes from. I mean, think about that. I mean, that just should cause our draw to jump. Like, really? Really? And, and that leads Jesus in verse 12 to sigh deeply. Now, this is a different tor- sort of a sigh than we read about in Mark chapter 7. Remember when he was, he was touching the ear of the, of the deaf and mute man? And he was looking to heaven. And remember, we, we, we saw where it said that Jesus sighed, but that sigh was a sigh of compassion. A sigh of, of oh man, I, I'm coming into your world and I know it's been difficult. This sigh has a different connotation. It's a different word altogether that, that communicates a disgust and anger with Jesus. And so we can look down this 2,000 years later and say, oh, these Pharisees. Oh, come on, come on. How can they test Jesus? I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, obviously, well, well there's a couple things that it tells us. It tells us that faith in Jesus is not a matter of examining just the empirical evidence. Do you see that? I mean, some of us think, well, if if God would just move in power, like if we could just go to this crusade and this person could just get up from the wheelchair, if, if God would visit America with the same type of miracles maybe that he did or in some other culture that he does, if, if, if we could just see miracles, then we would believe. And friends, although I think we should pray for healing and, and certainly we believe that God heals today, do you see, friends, that even when Jesus does miraculous things that still there are people that will not believe? And that should tell us something, that faith is a gift From heaven, not a mere weighing out of the empirical evidence. You can see amazing things and still not believe in Jesus. But I think the more personal thing that it shows me is that I need to think about the ways that I, I test Jesus too. I was considering just my life which may be similar, I imagine, to your life and the ways that I test Jesus. I can remember saying things to Jesus like, Jesus, if you will just get me through this thing, like if you will cause the consequences of that sin that I committed not to come to light, then, then I will serve you. I promise I won't do it again. I will never do that again, Jesus, if you don't let the consequences come out to light of that thing that I did. I will never do it again if you will just cause that to go away. Then I'll serve you. I promise. I promise. Am I the only one that is free to prayer like that? Anybody else? Yeah, thank you, Bill. Appreciate that. It's you and me, brother. And what are we doing when we do that? We're testing Jesus. And here's what testing Jesus is. There's this old British preacher named Dick Lucas back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I love just to listen to him because of his accent. I can't get enough of all things British. I grew up watching Masterpiece Theater with a mother who was an English literature teacher on PBS. And so, yes, I was rather disgusted with the ending of season three of Downton Abbey. But anyway, that's another story. But I just can't get all things. I mean, I just can't get enough of British stuff. And I love to listen to this British preacher. He's passed away now. His name is Dick Lucas. And I listened to him this week preach on this text and he says this about this verse. He says that the essence of unfaith is to put God to the test, to lay down prior human conditions for believing in him. Do you see what we do when we say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this, is that we are, putting, we are turning the tables on creation. We are the created saying to the creator, here are your conditions for how you should superintend my life. Do we realize the arrogance of that position? We have no right to do that. And when we do that, just like Jesus did to these Pharisees, I believe it elicits the disgust of Jesus that we would be so haughty as to say, Do this, Jesus, and prove yourself to me one more time. Now, this is not to say that we should not ask God for big and mighty things. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that we should reel in faith. I'm saying that we should approach God humbly, realizing that He has shown Himself to us and that He has been clear to us and that we should never put down prior conditions for believing in him. By the way, if you're, um, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus and you're here today, um, I, I don't mean to say that sort of arrogantly to you, because I understand you, you know, you're examining Jesus, and you're wondering, you're, you're maybe weighing the empirical evidence, and here, here's the kindness of God. He, he will take good arguments for his existence he will take maybe a philosophical argument by a Christian philosopher and use it to bring you along in your journey of faith. He may use some miraculous event. I, I'm not saying that he doesn't use these things, friend. But I want you to ultimately, see, I don't want you to dig deeper down into your intellect to get to a point where you are satisfied that God has proved himself enough to you, and then you will believe him. Friends, if you hold that standard out for the creator of the universe, do, do you see, you will never get to the end of that endless self-absorbed track. Now, these things may bring you along and be evidences to you of who Jesus is, but ultimately, I want to bring you to the end of yourself so that you won't look to reason alone, but you will look to the grace of of Christ, realizing that trusting in him, knowledge of who Jesus is, is ultimately a gift, not a human achievement of wisdom. And so yes, 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 consider the arguments, consider the facts, consider the case of Christianity. But ultimately, you are at the mercy and grace of Jesus to believe in him. If that offends you, well, I, I think that you need to be offended, because if you, if you only trust in yourself, you will find nothing but self. You need to get to the end of yourself, and I say that in kindness and love, because all of us, even those of us that are already trusting in Jesus, have had to come to that point as well, and that brings us to, brings us to the last section. Let's read, and to that, what I was just hinting at, the grace of Jesus, Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. I love these cats, man. (laughs) I mean, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And it's like, you know, Jesus is reading their minds, looking at their nervous little huddle over in the back of the boat. Verse 15, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven." of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. (laughs) I mean, isn't that us? All right, come on. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, he's talking about Mark chapter 6, the feeding of the Jews, and how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here I think we see the amazing grace of Jesus. And we see it in several different ways. We see it in Jesus warning his his disciples. He uses warning to bring spiritual illumination to his people. He says there in, in verse 15, let's read it again, and he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So what, is, what does this word leaven mean? So it's this ingredient that you would use in cooking bread. And sometimes in, in the scriptures, it actually has a good connotation that, you know, in one sense in Matthew 13, I think it is Jesus likens it to the kingdom of heaven. And he says that this, this ingredient, leaven, a yeast, sort of should be worked through the whole batch of dough so that it would, you know, the kingdom of God works into every culture and every, all throughout the world. But mostly it is seen by the Jews and it's a symbol of, of something that you don't want to put in your bread. And so he's saying, beware of mixing in this bad ingredient of the Pharisees and Herod into your bread, into sort of your spiritual bread. And so he's saying to them, beware, watch out. But here's the really interesting thing is that he he brings two groups of people together that are sort of polar opposites. The, the Pharisees, who are the religious zealots and like the conservatives, and Herod, who is the Gentile leader of God's people appointed by Rome to keep Jerusalem and the Jews in its place. And so... And who kind of personifies, remember Herod's banquet and the licentiousness of, of his banquet the, where his, his stepdaughter slash niece danced in front of him and, and because she asked for John the Baptist's head on the platter, he chopped off John the Baptist's head. So, so he, he's saying, beware of the leaven of the religious zealots and the licentious worldly Gentile leader, Herod. And he sort of lumps them together. And so what is that leaven? In one sense, sort of religious self-righteousness, and the other, sort of sinful licentiousness. And he brings them together, and what is that that, leaven? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Whether unbelief is too much trust in yourself, or whether unbelief is, 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 is rejecting God and living a life of sort of, you know, sinful, you know, distance from God. E- either way, it doesn't matter. See, see, in this room right now, we have people in this room who, who are prone to not believe in God because we're believing in ourselves too much. And then likewise, there are people in this room who are prone to not believe in God because they think, oh, that's some sort of archaic, strange moralism. There's no, we're enlightened people of the 21st century. We can basically do what we want as long as we're not bad people. That's the sort of licentiousness of Herod. But Jesus groups it all together and he says, beware of that. Beware of unbelief. And so it's like he's shaking. It's like he's grabbing the cheeks of the disciples. You ever had to have a, like a discussion one-on-one with your children? look at me, <laughs> beware of not trusting in me. Jesus chastens his people for their good. So, so don't despise the conviction of the Lord. Like that is biblical. Like, Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 in a few verses. Listen to this, listen to this. It says this. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Listen to this. He's quoting from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the Lord. Disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so, so listen what, what that's saying is, and what Jesus is doing here is he's chastising, he's warning, he's rebuking his disciples, saying, Don't be caught up in unbelief. Like, I want to get your attention here. Don't be drawn away from the culture by the culture. Believe in me, trust in me. And one of the great kindnesses and one of the great proofs. And one of the great evidences to us that we truly are children of God is when Jesus deals with us in this way. So, do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, no, no, stay on this course. Don't get caught up in that. That is God's Spirit speaking to you. And when you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. When you hear him prodding you, nudging you, do not harden your heart. That is the grace of Jesus. And and so, let's step back. Let's look at these disciples. Is this not strangely encouraging? I mean, let's not end this, and I'm about to end this here in just a second, and we're going to receive communion together. Is this not strangely encouraging? To read about this band of 12? (laughs) I mean come on. We can take this one of two ways. We can look down the end of our nose over 2,000 years and say, wow, those guys were knuckleheads. Or we can say, wow, Jesus is gracious with knuckleheads like me and you. And Jesus Peppers them with questions. It's like he is, he, it's like he's cornering them with questions. He said, Don't you remember when I did this? Don't you remember? You know what he's doing? He's shutting off any hope that they have in themselves so that they will get to the end of themselves. Do you see this? The point of this passage is to make us not look through our portals of time down the end of our noses and say, wow, Jesus is powerful because he started this little thing we like to call the church with a couple of knuckleheads. No, the point is to read ourselves into the story and say, I'm just like that. And Jesus peppers me with gracious, severe questions to put me in the corner. So I will finally let go of myself and let go of this world so that I can see finally that my only hope is in Him and that He is the only one that satisfies. So, so here's my question before we receive communion today. like Has, has Jesus backed you into a corner yet has He, has he walled you off with His questions, His, his gracious severe questions and has his grace wrecked you yet i mean it, it it has to wreck you you have to you have to be floored by your inability and awed by the graciousness of jesus before you can see anything else and do you see how that runs contrary to to the message often of america which is you can do it you can do it you can do it no no the message of the gospel is first that you can't do it and then our only hope is to look to jesus do you Do we not see that yet? Do we not see that he is? The only one that can truly satisfy. And don't let that cause us undue sorrow. Or condemnation. But let that conviction. Cause us to look to Jesus, who alone. Is our joy and our satisfaction. So in just a moment we're going to come to this table we're going to respond as when we are ready as the worship team leads us in song and Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church and he says that when we take this cup and this bread that we should examine ourselves and the examination should not be you know I've had a pretty good week No major arguments with my wife. Didn't yell at my children. I'm already disqualified, by the way, if that's the examination. (laughs) You know, didn't download anything I shouldn't have downloaded. Didn't watch any shows late at night that I shouldn't have watched. Didn't have any anger or malice towards anybody else. In fact, I witnessed two or three times. Invited somebody to church. Pretty good week. Yep, I can receive communion today. (laughs) That's not what it means to examine yourself. What it means to examine yourself is, have you been wrecked by grace? Do you realize, do you not yet understand that you are welcome to this table not because of your righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness? Do you not yet understand that that is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life? Do we not yet see that? So to examine ourselves is to say, Jesus, regardless of what my relative right standing or righteousness of this week has been, I look to you afresh because you alone are the bread of life that satisfies you alone. And I, again, with my brothers and sisters in this church, affirm afresh my trust completely in you. That's what it means to examine yourself. Are you not yet a Christian? If you're not yet a Christian, you you really shouldn't take this meal because we wouldn't want you to proclaim something that you don't yet believe. We wouldn't want to make you a hypocrite by just a religious tradition. Because what we're doing here when we receive this meal is to proclaim our faith and trust in Jesus's work on the cross alone. And and that's what he has done to reconcile us to God. We're all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. We We have all bought into the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod. We've all trusted in ourselves or we've all run to broken pleasures. But what Jesus has done is he has come and as Wayne read this morning and as he prayed that Jesus has obeyed God's holiness and his law perfectly where all of us have broken it. And because he is perfect and righteous, and because he is not just man, he is God, he lays down his perfect life on the cross to be the punishment that should have been ours. And he dies on a cross, and then he rises again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences. And now commands all of us in this room to turn away from trusting in ourselves and trust in him. And if you are not yet a Christian, Do that right now. Is God right now opening your heart? Do you understand now? Are you being wrecked by grace? Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. Don't try and figure out empirically how it all stacks up and whether or not this. Do do you understand that Jesus is your only hope? Look away from yourself and look to him. And if that is what you are doing right now, that is only because Jesus has given you a new heart and you are finally trusting. You are exercising the belief that he gave you. Look away, look to Jesus, and you too come to this table and proclaim and profess your trust in Jesus. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father as we come now to your table in a few moments would you give us the kind grace not to measure up how we stand compared to these seemingly dim-witted disciples or not to compare our sort of relative worthiness but to be backed into a gracious corner like you did in the boat with these twelve so that we would finally unlock the death grip that we have on our own righteousness and our own sin and that we would look into the eyes of the bread of life who alone can satisfy Father I pray that uh, once again you would back me up into a corner and that you would graciously show me that you are my only hope And that from that hope, Lord, I can live the life that you've called me to live. Lord, would you do that for me afresh and for my friends in this room who are Christians. And Lord, by your kindness, there's people in this room who you are saving, who you are bringing to life. Lord, would they look to Jesus? Would they look to him and his work on the cross and his death? In his resurrection, in his perfect life, not theirs, his perfect life, would you you give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe? Would you give them the very thing that you require of them, which is faith in Jesus? Because, Lord, they don't have it. They can't bring it to the table. They can only come if you give them what you require of them. So, Lord, I'm pleading with you to be gracious. To give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Friend, if if that's you, if you're trusting in Jesus, you you don't need to pray some magic prayer. You you don't need to uh, write anything down or come forward or raise your hand. You, You need to look to Jesus right now and say to him in your own words, I trust you alone, Jesus. My hope, we sang it earlier, my hope is in you and nothing else. Look to Jesus right now. And friend, if you are doing that right now, then you too are welcome to this table. Because you, right now, are finally proclaiming the same thing that that the Bible proclaims. That Jesus is the Lord and King of the universe. And He has defeated death and sin and all of its consequences on the cross, and is coming again to finally make all things right. If you're believing that now, you are welcome to come to this table with us. Father, I pray that you'd stir our hearts and that we would do these things for your glory, in Jesus' name.